and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Can we finally get someone on this podcast who knows who Paul Gauguin is? Please, just anyone. Yes, is the answer to that question. Very excited about our guest today, one of the artists we've had on the podcast. We're going to introduce him in a second. Before we do so, I just want to let all of you listeners know I am Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. That was also me with the weird voice. And the other host today is Justin Dorfman. Justin, how are you doing? Doing great. How are you? Doing great. Thanks. So those are the two hosts today. And our guest is Chris Coleman. Chris Coleman is really cool. He is the professor of Emergent Digital Practices and director of the Clinic for Open Source Arts at the University of Denver. Yes, I said really cool as a filler because that's a very long title. Basically, he does really cool stuff with both art and open source in a university setting in Denver, where he's calling from. Chris, how are you doing today? Hello, hello. I'm doing well. I'm so glad. So, Chris, I've interacted with you a few times over Ospo++. It's a large community of people dedicated towards open source program offices in universities and industries and cities. Kind of fun. But you've also been hanging out for a while with sustained folks. I know you've been active here and there. So it's really good to have you on the podcast and talk about what you're doing. I'm not really sure I have a good elevator pitch. So could you give me the elevator pitch for who you are and how it works? With regards to the Clinic for Open Source Arts, it's an organization that I created and now direct. I created around 2019 and it spawned out of efforts to figure out how my university and especially my program teaching young digital artists how to be a part of sustaining the open source space and making sure that we were contributing back to the tools that we use in the classroom. And so I spun up COSA and have been gathering money that I give back out to artists and developers. And we are working to train contributors, train community leaders, help improve the ways that some of these tools think about accessibility in terms of internationalization and educational materials, and even just trying to look at the longer horizon of how do these tools become much more sustainable and how do we help make sure that the right kinds of tools are also bubbling up to the surface, maybe from new voices and new spaces that aren't usually getting attention. So that's pretty much every buzzword I like. So that's awesome. Thank you so much for explaining what COSA is. First question, when I worked at Subway, I was a sandwich artist. So can you define what open source artist means? Because it sounds like short term for like coder dude. What do you think an open source artist is? When I'm talking about open source arts that the clinic is thinking about, we are thinking about open source software and some hardware as well. That can be anything from, you know, Arduinos, which is, you know, sort of the biggest name in open source hardware. So spanning that entire sort of software hardware space of things that are made to be used creatively. So I'm specifically focused on those tools. I mean, don't get me wrong, artists do amazing things with Excel spreadsheets, you know, and maybe even open office, but that's not its primary function. And so I think we are really focused on what are those tools that are designed for people to be creative with when we think about open source arts. But I think it's a huge space and it goes far beyond that. I think there are artists who were 
open sourcing instructions for how to make their art. And that is just as valid and interesting to me. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how you, first off, open office is used creatively. We just talked to Heiko Zitza today on the Sustained Open Source Design Podcast. He's the UX mentor for LibreOffice and the Document Foundation. We had Mike Saunders on this podcast recently, for those of you who are curious about LibreOffice and where it's gone, which is super, super cool. So I feel like I have to mention that. But when I say open office is used creatively, I always think of creativity as just innovation, as doing stuff. There's a really great quote I like by Alexander von Humboldt. It may have been his brother, actually, the other Humboldt. I think Johann was his name, which says, a man never owns so much as what he does. And it's possible that the worker in the orchard is in a truer sense its owner than the listless voluptuary who owns its fruit. And I like that because it makes me feel like, you know, let's put means back in the hands of the workers type thing, which is just a bit too socialist for this podcast. But when you say creative, all the code on GitHub is creative. Everything is creative. What do you mean by creativity? Do you mean that it's going into MoMA? Can you define it a bit more for me? Because I'm, I'm having issues teasing apart how you're getting it by getting people into COSA. The number one rule is if you say what you make is art, then it's art. I'll always hold true to that. Like if you've decided what you've just done is art, then it's art. I think in terms of how people want to claim the word creativity, you know, I think it's an interesting semantic discussion. I think perhaps that there is an interesting space where there's a kind of creativity that is focused on a sort of cultural production and sort of adding to the way that we tell stories about ourselves. That's maybe different than the functionality. You know, there's creativity to functionality, but there's also creativity that's about a sort of bigger idea or bigger cultural meaning making that I think, you know, that's the space where I'm really interested in. And I think artists exist. Great. Meaning making is good. It's good. I, I can understand that conceptually. That leads on to my next question, which I had to say this really bland philosophical one to get to, which is that creativity and art seem to me to be innovative. They're always the first person to do it. It's always, I'm doing this thing and it's really great. That's like the opposite of maintainers. Most maintainers of open source are like, yeah, I've closed 10 issues today again. And so I'm curious, like, how do you deal with teaching people at the Center for Open Source Arts? How do you teach artists who are open source people? Sometimes it's going to stink and it won't be creative. Or you need to hand it off to someone who's going to have grunt work. How does that work? I've found over time that there are people whose time is best spent in that mode of innovation. And there are some people who find real joy in that mode of helping, you know, much in the way that I'm an educator and most of my time is spent in that modality that doesn't take away from my artwork, but it does mean that I probably spend more time helping young people understand their creativity and develop their ideas and learn new technology than I do in making my own art. And so Everything's a gradient. And I think there's some beautiful spaces where people who are creative also really enjoy that work or are, are recognize their talent at that work of maintaining a community, of building an organization, of keeping something going. Yeah. So besides Gitcoin, I've been looking at the notes and, you know, one thing is how can we fund open source with 
Web3 and NFTs. And my question is, besides Gitcoin and Git NFT, which we both had those founders on, what opportunities are there for Web3 and NFTs to fund open source? I think one of the spaces that I've been seeing the most is a number of the open source projects have spun up wallets. And then with the continuing innovation of collaborative contracts, that it's become easier and easier for an artist who, say, has made an artwork in something like Hydra, which is a really great live coding visual software that's free and open source. And so then they're just like, when they write their contract to sell the artwork, they're just designating 10% of all income and all future royalties will go straight to Hydra. And I think there's a really beautiful way that, you know, it's kind of like, oh, this is a moment I'm commercializing my output from this software. And so I'm going to contribute some of this money back into the ecosystem. And so I'm seeing a lot of that, especially in the Tezos blockchain NFT space. And that's been really exciting. And I'm putting some energy into like encouraging that more where it's appropriate and where those founders are interested. Got it. So like right now, there's, as everyone knows, well, maybe not everyone, but a lot of us know is that there's a huge problem with trust in the NFT space. There's so many scammers that really have ruined the idea of non-fungible tokens. And I think it's really unfortunate and it really brings a lot of backlash anytime, you know, we, Richard, I, and the Sustain organization brings up anything related to crypto NFTs or Web3. As a professor, how do we get over this hump, this unfortunate situation that we're in where I believe just as you do, NFTs and Web3 can definitely be the future of sustaining open source and funding open source. So how do we get past this? Yeah. Whenever there's something new like this, there are people who rush in to make money. And it also requires that there's people there who believe in what it can be and push it forward and are trying to model the things that they want to see in the future. And so, you know, when I talk to students about it, it's simultaneously like, yes, there are significant issues here and we need to be really aware of them. And we need to push back on the culture that's gathering around those kind of spaces, which are frankly pretty toxic. But, you know, when you start to see possibilities, when you start to see options for new ways of participating and new ways of supporting, to be honest, one of the biggest conversations in open source, especially around the arts over the last few years has been, and guess what? If you want diverse voices to show up to the table, they need money because they might be supporting their parents at home. They might be dealing with a very different socioeconomic situation at home. You know, they're not a 25 year old tech bro worker who has some spare time. And if we're going to really have a, a deep conversation about who's involved, it's going to mean that real money needs to be involved. This can't just be run off of excess labor. Where does real money come from? Well, it needs easy ways for people to contribute to the community. And, you know, not every project can spin up a nonprofit and not every project can, you know, run a whole donation page and figure out how to do that. And this is a much easier way Right now, this is the most fluid way to get funding directly to the people who are involved in, in these kind of projects. 
And that's what's so exciting. I was really profound. I didn't know what the answer would be. I was just kind of throwing it out there. But I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of people don't see the big picture. They just see, oh, a-hole just made $200,000 and rug pulled and now, you know, all these investors out of money. Whereas we're not seeing kind of like the bigger picture where it's like, yeah, you know, not everyone can create a nonprofit organization. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of money, believe it or not. And there's taxes and all this other stuff. Look, pay your taxes, obviously. But if we want diverse voices in our community, which everyone says they do, then we're going to have to think of different ways to get there, easier ways and less friction. And I think this Web3 whole concept is something that can definitely get us there. And that was very profound. Thank you for that answer. My take is that a lot of people who are crypto bullish aren't having a big enough picture. So one of them is that it's environmentally catastrophic. Crypto in general is just horrible for a lot of things. And I say this as someone who has made money in the past off crypto. My student loans are gone because of crypto. So thank you, crypto. It's atrocious. On top of that, it's not diverse in terms of ownership. Most of the pools are now owned by small groups of people. It's actually very centralized. The protocols are decentralized, but the protocols didn't go far enough to actually mandate that within the structure of the protocols. And so you end up with large pools. So... What are the two responses that you would have to that, Chris? Yeah, I'm not a fan of crypto. What it has allowed is a new sense of, number one, how digital artists can make money. It really has changed the entire field. And for the first time, I feel like I can tell my students, hey, you don't have to basically work in some form of advertising as a new media artist. There are new ways for you to sell your work directly to people. I don't think the perfect models are available yet. I don't think the right kinds of currency situations are available yet. But I think the models that we're building right now are super inspiring and have so much potential for helping us see pathways forward. And again, I'm deeply involved in the Tezos blockchain and specifically the Taya community, which, you know, has gone through this evolution of experiencing a kind of collapse and then rebuilding itself using all of these ideas of Web3. You know, the founder walked away, but the community picked it up and they're building a DAO and they're getting community engaged. And it's being led not by people in the US and not by people in Silicon Valley, but like by people in Brazil and Argentina and other parts of the world. And it's really focused on globalizing that kind of leadership space that's not VC funded. And it's really beautiful to see a marketplace like that pop up. And it doesn't involve the Winklevox twins or any of those crazy people. I'm excited about that. I still have concerns about Tezos and its staking property and its non-decentralized properties, but that doesn't mean that the things that are emerging from this should all be thrown out. So let's back up a second. You've talked a lot about arts and we've talked about getting money towards open source maintainers and creators using Web3. And there's all sorts of ways of doing that. There's Gitcoin, which has done a ton of money. There's NFT sales. Let's just say that's a thing. We know that artists have gotten money for making NFTs. If we ignore everything else, that's actually pretty cool. Can you give me an example of what other projects there are that are really interesting that you've seen go through with the Center for Open Source Arts. 
or that are related? Because I'm still kind of curious, like, what sort of open source projects are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, we're deeply inspired by and collaborate some with the Processing Foundation in its own way is kind of doing some of the work we're doing, except they're only focused on processing and P5 and related projects. I think we're looking at all of the other small and medium-sized tools. Blender doesn't really need my help. <laughs> you know, I, think I am working to help institutions think more about how they support things like Inkscape and GIMP to make sure that those you know larger projects do get the support they deserve. But I'm interested in the projects like, let's say, Bitsy, which, you know, is run by like one person. And how does he get help in making sure that his project becomes sustainable? Because he's got 20,000 users a month and a community of people who are really engaged. So we're working with Bitsy. We're working with uh, Wick Editor. We're working with ML5. We've been working with Hydra, as I mentioned before. But we're also working with more esoteric things like the Feminist Dataset Project by Caroline Sanders. And thinking of a recent project is Close Isn't Home, which is a collective from different parts of Asia who were thinking about how their culture is represented in the form of open source 3D models online. And so they're actually creating models and contextualizing them with all the cultural information necessary if you actually want to use that model in your animation or your game. And so, you know, thinking about how culture is appropriated and remixed and put together and how can it be more aware than just picking up a pretty thing off of Turbo Squid. So it's a pretty wide variety. Some of the projects are really cool. Caroline Sanders has been on the podcast. She's also been in the Digital Infrastructure Fun podcast that's out now. You can go find the links in the show notes. So super awesome. Like Feminist Data's project is really cool. Fitzy looks really awesome. I kind of want to go play that right now. You mentioned earlier about getting money to these projects, like getting money to see. And this brought up a question which I had earlier, which I had forgotten, which is that it actually is pretty easy to set up a way to get money. You can just do it on Open Collective. So I'm kind of curious why we need Web3. Why is Web3 interesting more than just getting Open Collective? What's new? You know, I think all of these things are happening simultaneously. and. Just four years ago, I was talking with a lot of other people about, do we need a meta nonprofit that can gather funding donations and dole them out to small projects? I'm super excited that things like Open Collective have come together and filled that role. And we've been seeing some projects head that way. And there are some projects who don't want to participate in Web3 and FT space. I think we're still trying to figure out how what COSA does isn't just giving money, but is about giving guidance along with that money. We don't just like give money to Hydra. We have been like making donations specifically for certain capabilities so that, you know, they can pay certain contributors to spend two weeks focused on translating Hydra's documentation to Arabic, for example. And so I think we're interested in those sort of niches, whereas maybe what they're doing with Open Collective might be a way of just like having their base level consistent income. And so how can COSA use its network of mentorship and its greater knowledge of sustainable practices and connect projects to each other? How can I connect them with people who are doing similar things 
And then how can we use the funds that we give out to basically initiate projects that improve the situations for accessibility for diverse voices and in that community? Is COSA mainly focused on students? Are students the people who go through it or is it sort of outside the university as well? So yeah, COSA isn't focused on the students at DU, although some students at DU have been involved. Our primary work is engaging these open source projects beyond the school, beyond the university and around the world. It's exciting that our students are using some of these projects. We're kind of housed at the university, but it's really part of the work that I do and we do that is about doing public good. And that's our primary focus for the organization. Awesome. Just so I'm a bit clearer, you are still a professor of emerging digital arts, so you have students, but your focus on everyone is your reading. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, I live three lives. So it's like I'm a teacher and a professor who teaches classes constantly. And then I run this organization as an extra thing. And then I'm also an artist, which is another extra thing. So all three of those things are my current job. Can you talk a bit about where we can access COSA stuff? Because I assume that all the mentorship and the like that you make, you try and make it open source as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I'll say that we're just a couple years in and we're right now at that point where I'm trying to turn a lot more of the materials that we've developed into documentation. So while we do have some stuff, which you can find at clinicopensourcearts.org, and we also have a COSA GitHub page with a couple of preliminary things. But I think the majority of the work is still to come. We just finished up some of our National Endowment for the Arts uh, funded project to train community leaders. And so we're writing up documentation for that. That would be a kind of like open way and an open document that would allow people to further think about what it means to lead communities of artists and contributors. So we're quite excited about that. And then we're working next on how to train contributors. Again, you know, what does it mean to do this for artistic projects as opposed to just the really great resources that are already out there for contributors to open source projects in general? Can you tell me what you're most excited about at the moment? It sounds like this work is really cool and you're getting to one where you can share it, but like which facet is like the coolest? I mean, the thing that I'm most excited about at the moment is ramping up to a big conference in the fall. And that is going to gather about 100 creative open source project contributors. I'm excited because it's going to simultaneously be a space to work, a space to network. It's not going to be about the shiny leader initiators. I'm really interested in it being a conference about As you all said, like the people doing the day-to-day work, the people who are just contributing and turning it along, and they may not get invited to conferences all the time to be keynote speakers because they invented something cool. I'm interested in bringing all those people together and having them get organized and having them have their own kind of network and then spend some real energy onboarding a new generation as well as part of the conference. So... I don't think anything like that has ever happened for the creative coding slash open source arts space. So I'm super excited to make that happen. I like that. I think back to some of the coolest conferences I've been to, a good example would be Bang Bang Con in New York. 
super fun to see people who are just excited about the stuff they make, even though it's totally irrelevant to whatever else they're doing. I had a friend who coded a zip drive to go in and out of like the computer and he would do it in a way that the sound would match whatever MIDI file you put in. So you could have it go, it's just like, his enthusiasm was infectious and everyone at Bang Bang Con is like, I do this because it's cool. Check it out. It's just good to be around that energy. So that conference sounds super awesome. I guess another question I have coming off that is for the people who can make it there, people who would like to, or those who can't, how do you get involved today with COSA? If you make open source art, what can you do? How can we be part of the scene? You can always reach out at COSA at du.edu. Super simple email address. That's the best way to just sort of initiate the conversation. A lot of our relationships started that way. I think, you know, beyond that, check out the website, see what we've been up to and watch our social media, which is on mostly Twitter. We broadcast a lot of stuff on Twitter and that's where we would share some of our open call stuff. For the most part, a lot of the work that we've done is developed through networking and relationships. And the open calls are generally connected to specific projects as well. And so like this particular open call, we'll talk to a lot of the people who run the different communities around these artistic projects and ask them to ask their communities and their forums if they want to submit, if they want to come. And so not a favorite tool that you use and or contribute to, you should watch and the community will probably be getting an invite there. Thank you. Okay, I've asked you what the most uh, exciting thing, what's the hardest thing about your job right now or about open source for artists? You know, I think despite it all, we're still seeing the community have a significant amount of trouble getting the funding necessary, getting the energy necessary. I think it's really hard to convince a young person to join a community where everybody's tired and (laughs) to get them excited and see how they can participate and not get sucked in. How do they participate in a healthy way? And I think that's one of the things that we really want to focus on over the next year is like, what does sustainable contribution look like for an individual person? And in some ways it means we need to get more people involved so that everybody can take a little bit more of a break. And it also means, you know, new leadership structures that allow for that. It's lessons that have been learned hundreds of times by hundreds of projects, <laughs> uh, but we're still spreading the news, I suppose. But, you know, everybody's tense and out of time, but everybody also relies on these tools and we need them to continue to encourage accessible creative spaces. We can't all pay for an Adobe subscription. And so I was thinking deeply about what it means to put these tools into the world and make sure that artist who never imagined they could make a zine, you know, finds the electric zine maker and an hour later can tell her story about something that happened in her neighborhood. Those tools need to exist and they need to be exciting and we need to support them. You can see me reacting on the video. Sorry, listeners, but very accurate. I love phrase. No one wants to join a community where everyone is tired. That sums up so much of open source for me, but also just in general, that's just accurate, right? People don't want to join a game when like everyone's sort of half-assedly kicking a ball around. They want to join it when it's really exciting, when you're about to score a goal or when you just start, you know, like, so that's a really interesting point. I'm interested to learn what findings 
you process and put out, put out what you have around how do individuals build more sustainable open source art? And what does that mean? You mentioned leadership structures. I love that. It sounds like governance. That sounds like stuff that's really important. Also, more people in, more people out type thing. It sounds like personal commitments and obligations and boundary setting, which is something that open source needs way more than it has. So while I keep in mind that I'm so excited about seeing that, I know you're not there yet. So for our listeners and for me, where can we follow along with this work, with COSA, with you on the web? Yeah. So again, the website has most of the content. We do have a Medium account as well where we also place some of the same articles. So you can kind of cross connect if you want. But yeah, clinicopensourcearts.org is our primary. And then I don't know what the medium link is, but there are a couple of pieces that really look at some of the synthesis outputs that we've already been doing, even though it's still early in the scheme of things. But yeah, we'll keep sharing as we do. And, you know, again, we want a lot of the sort of guidance documents that are coming out of like our community leaders training program. We want those to be editable and adjustable. So those will go to our GitHub account for sure. Chris, I'm really excited about this work. Thank you so much for holding space for artists and open source. I know Errol will kick me for saying there aren't any because there are some. You're obviously one. There are other people as well. So I'm just always excited to talk to people who are doing this sort of work. So just thank you so much. You're not done yet. However, now it's the part of the show where we do spotlights. Spotlights where we point out people or projects which have helped us out in the past or which we think are really awesome and just don't get enough clicks and GitHub stars and or likes. So no further ado, Justin, what is your spotlight today? I'm really excited to share that there is a new podcast on our network. Let's Talk Docs with Portia Burton and Eric Holscher. We soft launched it. It's not in any of the... Apple Podcasts, like those marketplaces. So if you go to ltd-podcast.sustainoss.org, you can listen to Portia and Eric talking to leaders in the documentation space and really proud of it. And we're going to do it by season. So right now it's season one. We have four episodes at the time of this recording and check it out. Thank you, Justin. That is really exciting. Please go and listen if you like docs or ships or anything else. Naval related. No, the other kind of docs, everyone. Thank you, Justin. My spotlight is Cyberphone. A Cyberphone was a gramophone in like a large cabinet type thing. Think of like an old record player that would Google itself. And depending on how it was doing on the internet with hits, would play happy or sad music. Worked really well initially, and then eventually just started playing sad music all the time as it like stopped being relevant and then had to reset it. This was made by my old linguistics professor, Simon Kirby. I think the first professor anywhere of evolutionary linguistics, who is another person in academia who wears multiple hats, which is why I thought of it, Chris. So Cyberphone is super, super cool. It's at the University of Edinburgh. I think it's still somewhere, probably stashed in a cabinet, even though it's a cabinet itself. Check out the show notes for the link. Chris Coleman, what is your spotlight today? So my spotlight is the open source Afro Hair Library. It's a really beautiful project by A.M. Dark who's out at uh, UC Santa Cruz, who's thinking deeply about what it means to have 3D models of black hair available and not just available, but to think about what it means to use those assets in your games, in your animations. So how do you attach cultural awareness 
to the act of putting hair on somebody, which, you know, I think are the kind of cultural questions that we're not asking enough when we just, again, you know, quickly drag and drop from some library online. So I'm really excited for this project. And AM has been commissioning artists from all over the world to imagine and make these hairstyles and then make them available on the website for people to really represent Blackness in a more accurate and maybe truer way, culturally truer way. Awesome project. Thank you, Chris. And thank you for coming on. It's been great to learn about what you're doing at COSA, what you're doing at the University of Denver. I really hope that it goes really well. Please drop us links to the conference when you can. Let us know what we can do to get involved. Listeners will have a lot of these links in the show notes, so do check them out. Chris is also available, I believe, on Twitter and on Medium for sure. If you have any questions about sustainability, listeners, feel free to jump in on Twitter or email or the forum. And it's great to have guests like you, Chris. Thank you so much. Good luck. It was an honor. Thank you. Thank you.